Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shirley. Coming up on today's episode, Baroness Bake Off, Prue Leith tells me why she'd like to be in the House of Lords. Uh, before that, though, we bring you another Times Radio festive focus group. All of our favourite columnists, whether it's Liberace, Finkelvich, Alibert, Knight of the Marriott and Formel, we rounded up as many of them as we could. Times Radio Focus Group Chair James Johnson asking them what they make of politics this year. Yesterday we heard what they thought about the Conservative Party, so today it's the Labour Party. It's the Times Radio Focus Group. The Columnists on Times Radio. Like patting your head and rubbing your stomach, this trying to do this while talking. Oh, every day in the run up to Christmas, we're looking back on our favourite columnists uh, on the year with our favourite columnists. Not looking back on them. James Johnson normally does our Times Radio Focus Group. Used to be a pollster in Number Ten, uh, now runs JL Partners. He was in the hot seat, asking Rachel Sylvester, Danny Finkelstein, David Ivanovich, Alice Thompson, and James Marriott and Melanie Reed what they made of the year. Yesterday, we heard what the group made of the year for the Conservatives. Angry and vindicated. Turbulent. Three prime ministers, four chancellors and five education secretaries. Conservatives have been living in in a fantasy world. I think they're in a death spiral. A kind of slow motion plane crash. Well, today we're going to take a look at the year for the Labour Party. It's been a bit of a strange year for them. It's been a constant stream of calling for resignations, apologies and elections. But here are a few highs and lowlights. Earlier in the year, Deputy Leader Angela Rayner was accused of distracting Boris Johnson, he's easily distracted, by crossing and uncrossing her legs in the Commons. You know, if we ever find who is responsible for it, we'll, well, I don't know what we'll do with them, but we'll be the terrors of the earth. But, you know, it's totally intolerable, that kind of thing. Uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer were questioned by Durham Police over Beergate, for which they were eventually later cleared. Everybody's hungry, and a, and a takeaway was ordered. It was then delivered into the kitchen of the um, offices. Well, it sounds very the, much okay. like a no, birthday no, no, just, cake just, no, no, no. at I mean, an event just... where people were working, which is exactly well, what all, the Prime all, all, Minister has said. In Durham, all restaurants and pubs were closed, okay. so the takeaways were really the only way you could eat. Oh, that was uh, Keir Stummer defending himself on Good Morning Britain. Uh, well, uh, one big recurring theme during the year was that Keir Stummer wasn't very exciting. Patrick McGuire and I spoke to several of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet colleagues and they explained off the record they thought he was a little bit dry. Is he exciting? No, of course not. That isn't why we ended up with him. But there's a big difference between not being Mr Rasmataz and boring everyone to death. Well, to try and liven things up, Keir Starmer spoke to Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson on their Past Imperfect podcast. 
but he revealed that he had kissed a Tory. I'm on very good terms with many, many Tory MPs. I'm not ashamed about it. And I've got very good friends who are Tories. Um, and they've been very, very good friends of mine for a very, very long time. And long may that last. But uh, Labour now ends the year with a huge lead in the polls, 20 or 25 points ahead. But how firm is it? Uh, and how do our economist panel think the year has gone for Labour? Uh, let's dip in then to the focus group, kicking off with Rachel Sylvester. For me, I think you could say if the Tories feel like they're kind of preparing for opposition, Labour are now really preparing seriously for government and they feel as if they want to be in power now. The Tories almost seem to have given up in, on that, uh, a lot of them. And you've got Keir Starmer sending his shadow ministers off for lessons in learning how to be a minister. He's taking advice from Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. There's a sense of seriousness about the Labour Party that came across in, at the party conferences to me very strongly, the contrast between the kind of extraordinary circus that was the Tory conference in the dying days of Liz Truss, if there were very many days of her, and then uh, followed by the Labour conference where they seemed sort of really disciplined and together and motivated to win. So that is, I think, the general contrast for me. Yeah. I was really into the Angela Rayner interview she gave when it looked like, she, as Rachel said, you, you, you wanted her to be really competent and together. And she started talking about her boob job. And actually, a lot of friends said, why is she doing that? But it was a brilliant interview because she didn't say anything stupid about anything to do with policies or plans. She was incredibly disciplined about what she was saying. And I thought, God, they really, really want to win that. And then she just threw in the boob job because it was kind of actually quite a clever funny thing to say that to put everyone else off track from the rest of what she was saying. I thought, you know, they really want to win this now. She's not going to give away anything else. Um, yeah, three years ago at the Labour Party conference, the delegates waved Palestinian flags. And at this conference, they sang God Save the King. Um, and nobody shouted and there weren't any hecklers. I mean, that is horribly disciplined for the Labour Party. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's... And since then, um, you've had all these complaints uh, that um, the leadership of the Labour Party are forcing through their candidates to be MPs. And at the same time, Keir Starmer said there's no way that he can see that Jeremy Corbyn, this is the last Labour leader we're talking about, the leader who led them into the last election, will be a Labour candidate at the next election. It is the most remarkable transformation of a political party within a short period of time I think I have ever seen. He's done in three years what it took Neil Kinnock a good seven or eight to do uh, and so on and done it with the support of the membership. And one day we are going to reflect upon just kind of what a remarkable thing this is. It's just that we're waiting until they actually win something before we allow ourselves to do it. Yeah, I think we're waiting for something else, actually, which is we're waiting to understand... Um, who Keir Starmer really is. Unquest Davidson questionably correct. They the uh, the sort of single-mindedness Keir Starmer has shown and and political deafness actually this year. Once he picked sides, which he didn't do at the beginning of his leadership, once he picked sides, he has been pretty relentless about it. And what he's trying to do is remove from the Tories any ability to uh, to, to hang on to anything that Labour has said or done uh, as a way of recovering their position. Um, but what I don't yet know or trust is whether that represents his real outlook um and and the reason for that is that he seems to have changed his real outlook a lot of times in his political career i i can't you know i'm, I'm not mr great certainty myself i don't i don't you know sort of stick with one thing and think i'm always right about that forever uh but nevertheless um 
it has been a quite a remarkable transformation. So I think I'd wait a little to judge uh, who he really is. Um, I think it's quite difficult to tell that. Uh, but that having, that having been said, if you're looking at the last year, you can't question that this year has been very disciplined and very politically astute um, and strategically. If you listen to him at Prime Minister's questions, he often has captured the the the, the, politi- the most politically astute way of approaching a question and politically ruthless as well. I think I just think Labour have. As Danny, Danny and David have said, Labour have discovered the power of dull, and they've discovered that that, that dull dull is the new thrilling. Dull is what we all want for Christmas, and 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 in in Starmer they have a guy who is basically very decent by default, uh, rather dull. You know, not no flashy sort of figures of speech, and and he's perfect. He's absolutely perfect. He is what. He's what everybody wants to be at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I guess following on from Mel- from what Melanie said, yeah, I completely agree with Danny that Keir Starmer is a superb internal party political operator. I sometimes think in the news and in, in the discourse more generally, that point kind of spills over into a little bit of wishful thinking that people are perpetually saying, oh, he's so charismatic now, you know, or, oh, that was brilliant, his best prime minister's questions yet. You know, he's got a bit of sort of fire in him. And I'm always a little bit sceptical of this. I'm, I'm not convinced that he's got any more charismatic or particularly any more relaxed, as people occasionally will say. And I sort of think there are some aspects in which, yes, he clearly is, you know, doing a brilliant job. There are other aspects in which, you know, as, as the kind of Tories fall apart into chaos, people, you know, he either begins to look good by comparison or people begin to kind of project their hopes onto him a little more than he always deserves. Any moments, any standout moments for Labour this year that we uh, want to reminisce on? You know, I do think what has happened with Jeremy Corbyn has to be understood as remarkable uh, for two reasons. One is obviously having the bottle to decide that you're not going to let the uh, previous leader run for Parliament as a Labour candidate. And second, and, and understand, which was accompanied by an understanding that the real, that one of the biggest parts of the problem with anti-Semitism was the denial of it. Um, and realising that itself was um, uh, an issue and therefore removing Jeremy Corbyn for that reason. But secondly, the fact that the the Corbynites have obviously decided they can't retaliate by forming their own political party, as was kind of uh, mooted, because they actually need the rest of the party. And uh, that is a, though tacit, a very important acknowledgement. When Rachel and I did an interview with Keir Starmer, and he talked about having kissed a Tory. I thought that was quite a good moment. He knew what he needed to say. He needed to make sure that people in the middle ground and natural Tories weren't too worried about him. Although I think by saying he's kissed one, I don't know if that makes them more reassured or not. I think I'd definitely choose the national anthem at the party conference, uh, like David. That I think that was symbolically uh, a real moment. And you had Keir Starmer making his speech surrounded by Union Jacks and everywhere you went in the, at the conference there was sort of these flags it was extraordinary. Sort of quite a, a moment of quiet symbolism was the fact that Eddie, Eddie Izzard didn't get uh, picked as a, as a candidate in, in Sheffield thought that said quite a lot about wanting to be dull. That was Melanie Reid there rounding off uh, the Times Radio Festive Focus Group featuring all of our Times columnists. That was uh, Melanie Reid, Rachel Sylvester, Danny Finkelstein, David Ivanovich, Alice Thompson and James Marriott, all chaired by uh, former number 10 pollster James Johnson. Our Times Radio Festive Focus Group with all our favourite columnists. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Prue Leith.
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Restaurateur, businesswoman, novelist, university chancellor, bake-off judge, purveyor of colourful glasses and jackets, and now star of a one-woman show... Dame Prue Leith has a CV as long as a bill at one of her restaurants. I didn't like that. I don't know if her restaurants are expensive. I'm sure they're lovely. Born in South Africa. (laughs) Born in South Africa. She opened her first restaurant, Leith's, in London's Notting Hill in the 60s, earning a Michelin star, which propelled her to become one of the country's best-known foodies. But what about politics? Prue worked with the Labour Party in the wake of Jamie Oliver's expose on unhealthy school dinners by running the School Food Trust. She worked with the Conservatives to help write David Cameron's social policy in 2004. She advised Boris Johnson on food in hospitals as well. Her son, Danny Kruger, is a Tory MP, uh, though, as you'll hear later, they don't always agree. Now, uh, regular listeners will know that Prue and I were on board the Queen Mary 2 for the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at Sea. And, uh, well, I caught up with Prue and I started off by asking her if she'd recovered yet. You know, it was wonderful, wasn't it? I, it was a lot I, of fun. Really it. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, we had a lot of good talks. But it was, I always had found it really restful because, you know, I didn't have to think very much. <laughs> it's just being sort of lulled to sleep by the, uh, so we should explain it was the, the, the Times, uh, Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at sea. And we were both <laughs> on there for a week crossing from New York to, um, to Southampton. Uh, and it was nice. It was nice to just sort of mix it with people. And I, I felt slightly shamed into having a salad one day when uh, you and I were chatting and then we went and got lunch and I really wanted a big pie. But um, I thought if I was having lunch with Pooley, I probably couldn't do that. Well, I tell you what, that ship, you can eat eight meals a day, if you like. So you could put on a couple of pounds just crossing the Atlantic. <laughs> there were definitely shirts that fitted at the start of the week that didn't at the end so Pooh, I, rattled, I rattled off all of your many in fact probably there's even more jobs than that if if i asked ed balls the same question but i interviewed him uh on the on the crossing if you're filling in a form and it says name Prue leith occupation what do you put well do you know i now put retired which is not true but it it stops it stops all the questions <laughs> If you, oh, boring, boring. She's retired. Um, but yes, no, I know I do do it, a lot of things. Um, 
But um, if you'd asked me what is my profession, mm. I'd have said writer. And that covers so much. Whether people, that's... The public, if those who know me would say, no, no, your profession is eating cake for a living. <laughs> and you're a writer, both of both of like cookbooks and uh, so, but also uh, fiction and and your your autobiography. Yes, autobiography and also journal, a lot of journalism. I do mm. journalism all the time. Journalism is great because it, it, it feeds that writing bug. You know, it stops you feeling anxious because you're not writing something. On the other hand, it, it's not so um, stressful as writing a novel. <laughs> but I've written eight of those and I've got stuck on the ninth. So I'm halfway through one. You'll stop what because you can't, you don't know how it ends. No, no, I just find I didn't want to do it. And I keep finding, you know, displacement activity. I'll do anything except write the novel. Anyway, what my newest game is, which is a fine thing for an old lady like me to do, is I'm taking, I'm, I'm going on tour like a stand-up comic, like you. Yes. Actually, Matt, I finally understood why so many stand-up comics, and this certainly doesn't apply to you yet, but you ha- you sometimes see actors or comics who just really should have retired years ago, but they're still on that stage because they want that buzz, that amazing, feeling of the whole audience loving you and and it, that, i know you're, you're, it actually starts next year at all but if you've done you've done some already some sort of I practice of, yeah i did a few tryouts first of all in bath and leamington spa and i was so frightened i didn't enjoy it at all my heart was banging like anything and i was really scared and the, the audience liked it and they ticked all the boxes you know when you do a tryout it's rather terrifying the the audience all get a little card to say would you recommend this to a friend I thought, oh, God, I'll get about 40% or something dreadful. And I got 100%. Wow. 100% of the audience said they wanted, they would recommend it to a friend. So then I thought, well, then I have to commit to this. But I still wasn't enjoying it. But when I got to Los Angeles, because I then went to New York and then to Los Angeles, because I went to do American tour as well. So I had to have a tryout for their producers. And you know, I know the Americans are over the top anyway. But Matt, I absolutely understood that desire for that buzz. Because before I had, first of all, I asked Joanna Lumley if um, if she thought I could do this, because I'm not an actress. I mean, she does it all the time, and, and she loves it. And she said, go for it. She said, the audience have will open only be there because they love you anyway. They've only bought a ticket because they're on your side. So they want you to, to do well. And, and they're just so, so she said, you'll be fine. The audience will carry you. And then I understood that because these, this um, Los Angeles audience, I walked onto the stage and they were shrieking and hollering and shouting, we love you, Prue, and banging. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of some of them were standing up. I thought, my God, I'm going to get a standing ovation before I've opened my mouth. <laughs> And this is partly because Bake Off, Bake Off became a big hit in America during lockdown. Is that it's right? Entirely because of Bake Off. I yeah. would love to say it was because I'm the greatest performer on stage ever seen. <laughs> oh, it's because they love Bake Off. I mean, ninety nine percent. I've just launched today. I've just been um, looking at the samples. I've launched a, a China range, you know, with wonderful, lovely colours, bone china, and it's absolutely beautiful. And I've been trying to do this for years and years, but Nobody would listen to me. But now, because I'm a bake-off queen, <laughs> suddenly <laughs> all sorts of worlds have opened up for me. And um, so now things I've wanted to do for years, I'm now doing. 
But I have um, to say, I didn't want to do the one-woman tour for years. It never occurred to me. It only occurred to me when I met the producer, who's the guy who does Joanna Lumley's tours and her and all her yeah. television programs. He's her producer, Clive Tuller, he's called. And he, over lunch, probably having had a drink or two too many, um, he said, you know, I was telling funny stories or something, and he said, you should have a show. Why don't we do that? So I and said, why not? Yes. And now it's all happening. And now it's all happening. I've got so much I want to ask you about. Yeah, um, go on, go on. Let's talk about politics. You got your why Damehood not? last year. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I know <laughs> you joked that you you you, you didn't because I asked you when we uh, we were talking on the cruise who 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 gave you your Damehood, and you didn't get one of the big royals. Uh, no, I am um, my local Lord Lieutenant did it, and she was a very nice woman. But she had to do it because um, I had this wonderful letter from the palace, which it didn't, I can't remember the exact words, and it wouldn't have been quite as bold as this. But basically what it said is, look, we've got so many knights and dames queuing up to be dubbed (laughs) that we won't get round to you for for four years. So um, you've got every right to be done by a royal, but you'll have to wait. Or you can have it done by your local lieutenant, Lord Lieutenant who stands in for the Queen, or they said, you can have it by post. <laughs> and I thought having, having it by post would be a little bit, you know, sort of thing come through the arm. So I didn't think that much of that. So I opted for the for the Lord Lieutenant, and she came along, and my daughter read the citation, which is very unusual, apparently. And um, we had a few drinks, and it was great. That would <laughs> be good. nice. Fine. What about going one better, Prue? What about the House of Lords? Would you go with the House of Lords? Would I go to the House of Lords? Yeah. I'd go like a shot, but I, they, I know they won't have me. Because I was once asked, many, many years ago, I was asked by both the Tory party and the Labour party if I would take their whip. You know, would you take the Labour whip? And I said no. And they would you take the Tory whip? And I said no again. And so I thought, well, you know, if, if two grandees from both of these parties think I would be useful in the House of Lords, I would love to do that. Because I'm a I'm interfering bossy woman. I like to get my ball into everything. <laughs> and um, so then I, the only way to do it, to be, so I realised what I wanted to be is a cross-venture. So I would be independent. And um, so I, I applied, but I never got in. They sent me a nice letter saying, you're just the sort of thing, material we'd like in the House of Lords, but we don't have space for you at the moment. So your, But your application is in a drawer. And there it stayed until I turned 70. And then when I turned 70, I had a letter from them saying, you can throw that, um, you know, forget it now, because you're over 70 and we don't, we don't make... And you can't apply as a cost bench when you're over 70. Surely, yeah. surely. I mean, I can't believe that somebody's not made you sort of minister for school food, minister for school dinners in the House of Lords. Well, um, um, uh, no, they, 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 won't, uh, they won't have me anywhere near the House of Lords, obviously, but... Um, but I have spent a long time, I was chair of the School Food Trust, which was a government quango, and we did really, really well, um, I'm sorry to say, until the Tories came in and had their bonfire of the quangos, and we lost all our funding, and 70 people who were working really hard and doing a lot of good work, making um, school dinners better. But that's what happens with governments. It's really distressing how often good initiatives um, which are backed by some minister, and then he leaves or is fired or moved 
and then you know his successor isn't interested in his that guy's passions he wants his own she wants her own and so they take the money away and do something else with it and do you think that the literally on that specific issue the quality of school dinners has got worse as a result it certainly got worse but it's got worse for a whole lot of reasons the main one is that food is not considered education by the Department of Education. If they did what they do in Finland, which makes puts a, a knowledge of food and an understanding of healthy food, and actually they even have and a like of good food, because frankly, if you don't, if children don't like food, it's no good preaching at them that it's healthy and it's good for them. They have to learn to like it, to love it. And if they if they learn cooking and they learn about sustainability and they go to out to farms and they see how cheese is made and all the rest, they get to like food. And then, you know, there's some hope that they'll grow up eating healthy food. And I went to, to a university in Finland because I sort of didn't believe them. I thought this is all so perfect, as it's all compulsory. Every child has to learn to cook, every child has to eat the school dinner. There's no choice. It's um food is in every single um, lesson in one way or another, whether it's sports or nutrition in science and so on. And so I thought, well, that's easy. But when they leave school, which they do at 16 to go to college at 17, they won't, they'll go straight into McDonald's, won't they? And so I went to, I went into see one of these enormous universities or colleges. And they, there they did have all around the edge of the room, they had Dunkin' Donuts and all the things that, you know, um, are not particularly good for you and then in the middle they had all this food that the children had learned to like at school so there were salads and there were you know um there were pizzas and there were pies and there were there were all sorts of good healthy food and all the children almost all the children were in the middle eating what they were used to i mean yes they'll have an odd cupcake or dunkin donut or something but not often and on the subject so next month we were supposed to be having the junk food ban the yeah, ban on buy one, get one free offers and pre-watershed adverts and all that. So that's now been kicked into the long grass again, I think, till after the next election. So who knows what's going to happen then? Yeah, I know. Well, if, um, governments are always torn, aren't they? Because they get, a, you know, it profits them if, he, if, if manufacturers sell a lot of chocolate and ice cream because they get a lot of tax. So they're always a little conflicted. But I think if they started with education, I did say all this to Michael Gove when he was Minister of Education, <laughs> but he didn't, um, he absolutely got the point. He's a very bright guy. And actually, the report that he got Henry Dimbleby to write on about, food policy, yeah. about food policy was absolutely brilliant. I mean, if any government would just pick that up and do it, we'd have no obesity problem. We'd have a lot of, you know, good trade and... Yeah. So, so why do you think they don't do it? Because you've, like you said, you've worked. It's not like you're just, so you know, uh, somebody who's come to this. Like you were literally worked in the Department of Education. You ran the the school yeah. food trust. Why yeah. don't they do it? Um, because it would be it would be highly controversial. I mean, people who have brought up their children on um, takeaways don't take kindly to having what they think of as a nanny state telling them that they've got to eat that. But actually, where it on the few schools that have done it, and I have even known a few British schools that have done it very thoroughly, the parents end up absolutely delighted because they don't have the kids nagging them in the <laughs> supermarket. You know, I want that for my school lunch and I want that. Because they, 
there's no choice. You go and eat what you're given and you eat really nice, delicious food. Again, Henry Dimbleby is practicing what he preaches. He has a charity called Chefs in Schools. And the chefs are trained to not only cook, obviously they know how to cook, but they cook very healthy food, a lot of it vegetarian. They sit down with the children and they eat with them and they are responsible for talking to them and training them and teaching them about food. And it really works. And the kids love it and they eat it. Uh, one other thing I want to ask you about politics. Uh, listeners might know this, but your son is a Conservative MP, Danny Kruger. Yes, yeah. Um, and you, you two, is it fair to say you don't agree much on politics? And the, the covered uh, thing is the uh, uh, the issue of assisted dying. Yeah. Um, uh, you're pro and he's anti. Yes, yes, he is. Um, he, he's a very, he's a very principled fellow, and I do understand his objections. And as a politician, he feels that it's a dangerous way to go. A bit to um, allow assisted dying because he thinks that it's a slippery slope and that you know we start off saying maybe you know we, we might start off saying um, that um, only people who have got six months to die you know until their death they are already diagnosed as dying um, and they're in incurable pain and um, and so on should be allowed to do it and that's what I campaign for. But I do agree that it might be really difficult. Well, no doubt, uh, Prue, that's uh, an issue which is going to run and run. Um, are you looking forward to Christmas, finally? Do you have a big Christmas, small Christmas, turkey, all the trimmings? You <laughs> well, must I'm, be sick I'm of cooking. Going, I'm actually going to Sun Daniels for Christmas. Ah, oh, there we are, you see. But no politics around the Christmas table. No politics around the Christmas table, but I am cooking the dinner. But he's doing all the, you know, the, 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 the thing that is exhausting about family Christmases is that making all the extra beds and worrying about the other meals, you know, Christmas <laughs> Eve and what you're going to have on Christmas, Boxing Day and so on. And he's got to do all that. He's doing I, all of that. Christmas and if people are looking for a Christmas present, how can they get tickets to your, your one-woman show? They can buy tickets online and they should certainly do that for Christmas presents. Last-minute Christmas presents. My show. That was Bake Off's Dame Prue Leith. Her 34-date tour, it's called Nothing in Moderation, uh, begins on February the 1st in Shrewsbury, goes all the way through to April. I mean, I have to say, I was looking at her dates, her tour dates she's doing. Um, she's doing far more dates than I managed, and they're all back-to-back as well. She's going to be absolutely exhausted. Uh, so, yeah, you can go online uh, and get tickets for that. You'd go to mickperrin.com, mickperrin.com. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from?